You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series on the life and work of Jesus. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Let's open up our Bibles and we're going to get into Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And last week we talked about uh, who Jesus was, who he is. Okay, we looked at genealogy, we talked about a ragtag group of people that were listed here, and, um, and how much God's redemption plan was for every single one of them. Okay, whether prostitute, whether Gentile, uh, whether just weird stuff happening in their life, God's redemption plan was for each of them. Every person listening to that genealogy, we specifically talked about Judah and three of the women that were mentioned there and just the amazing way that God uh, redeemed all of these people regardless of who they were once they recognized who he was. And so that's the incredible thing about God and his redemption plan. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at baptism and temptation baptism and temptation. Now, when I told someone I was doing baptism and temptation, they were like, really, together at the same time? There's so much in each of those. That's why I said it's gonna be like six hours, okay? Uh, so, uh, we're gonna do baptism and temptation, baptism and temptation. So, um, I heard one time that every good sermon starts with an anecdote or a joke, right? Have you heard that, Steve? Yeah? Yes, okay, every good sermon starts with a joke or an anecdote. This is an anecdote, okay? Now, I've got several friends here tonight, um, some from Florida Gardens, which is a Baptist church, okay? And I've got some friends back here from Family Church, which is uh, Pastor Jonathan Ramitar, which is also a Baptist church. So this is a good Baptist joke. I didn't even plan that, y'all. I just knew this as a, there's not really all that much Baptist about it, except for the fact that there were three Baptist preachers that met together on a regular basis, okay? And they would have lunch about once a month. Well, the part of the country that they lived in, in Kentucky, okay? Now, Baptists in Kentucky, that's probably a whole different breed of people uh, as far as Baptists are concerned, guys, so don't take it personal, okay? So these three pastors had a problem inside of their church, Okay, up in the rafters of their church, they had bats, bats. Can you imagine going to church and looking up and seeing bats hanging down from the rafters of your church? Wouldn't that be weird? Okay, so each month, these guys got together and they talked about, hey, uh, what's going on in your service? What's this? Give me some new ideas, blah, blah, blah. Hey, did you figure out a way to get rid of the bats? No, nothing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, one week, one guy came back and he just looked miserable. He looked terrible. And they're like, dude, what's going on? And he said, well, I thought I had figured out my bat problem. He said, one of the guys in the church recommended that I bring a shotgun, and I just scare them with the shotgun. So, not knowing too much about shotguns, well, I just loaded that thing up just to scare them, and I shot three times into the air. Now we have three new skylights, and more bats came in as soon as the ceiling was opened up. So we have a bigger problem than we had before, and it cost us a ton of money. Oh, man, we should never do that. We should never do that. So weeks went by, and bat problems increased, and then one day, one of the guys walks in with a big old grin on his face. Sorry, Siri. 
one of these days we're gonna get Siri saved. She's gonna hear the gospel and she's gonna say, I would like to, I'm kidding. Um, So one of these guys walks in with a big old grin on his face and they're like, well, Brother Bob, why are you so happy today? And he's like, boys, I figured it out. I got rid of my bats. And they're like, oh, what did you do? And he said, oh, we preached the gospel to them, baptized them all, and made them members of our church. We haven't seen a one of them since. (laughs) That's bad, isn't it? That's bad, right? See, it had to be Baptist because the member thing, that's definitely. So, but listen, what is it about baptism and getting people connected to the church that often makes them run away? Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed when people take that step of faith to be obedient to the Lord that all of a sudden they just get so discouraged and so beat up and so many things happen to them? We shouldn't be surprised, okay? We should be prepared. Because when we look at the scripture, the reason that I'm teaching these two things together is because they go together. Jesus gets baptized and then he's tempted, Okay? The devil like turns up the heat when somebody makes this public proclamation of faith. And that's exactly what baptism is. We're going to read this section of scripture and we're going to start to break this down. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord. And we just ask you to uh, be with us this evening, Lord. We ask that you would teach us, Lord. Whatever I have prepared here on the notes, Lord, we believe that this is from you, Lord, and we ask that you would teach each and every one of us, Lord. Meet us where we're at. Guide us through your word. Grow us, Lord. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we can meet here in this place, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for so many amazing things that we can learn from studying your word. So just guide us, uh, Jesus, as we go through this tonight. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so... The baptism of Jesus, a public proclamation. Now, if you look at the Gospels, okay, this shows up in every single Gospel. Now, not everything shows up in every single Gospel, okay? You'll look through the Gospels, you'll be like, oh, that story's there, this story's here, this story's here. The story of the baptism of Jesus, as you can see on the slide, okay, it says right there, Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17, Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22, and John chapter 1, 29 through, uh, it says 24 in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it's 34, because that's backwards counting. So 29 through 34, okay, it appears in all of the Gospels, so it's got to be greatly significant, okay, it's got to be greatly significant. So this is Jesus, God in flesh. We said that last week, right? Jesus, God in flesh. We established that. He came down. He dwelt among us. So why is he getting baptized? He's perfect. Why does Jesus need to get baptized, right? Now, if you know the story, Jesus was taken into the temple when he was a baby, and he was dedicated in the temple, And now that he's beginning to start his earthly ministry, he is being baptized, okay? Now, John the Baptist will baptize him, and we don't have time to go into all the details of John the Baptist. Fascinating, fascinating stuff about John the Baptist. Most of us, if we met John the Baptist, we'd probably run the other way, 
Okay, uh, he wore camel hair and he ate locusts and he would pull the honeycombs out and eat those things and all that kind of stuff that we would consider really weird. He was very much uh, one of those like people that you know would camp out a lot in the wilderness and probably dirty hair, probably didn't smell the greatest. I don't think they had deodorant back then. I don't think so. I'm just guessing. Um, but he probably didn't smell the greatest, to be honest with you, okay? But John had a powerful message. John preached repentance. John preached repentance. And so John started baptizing people as a symbol of repentance. As they would repent, he would baptize them. And it was almost like they were being washed of their sins, Okay, but it was purely symbolic. And so when we look at baptism, we need to understand, and this is a basic definition that I give of baptism when, uh, when I teach about baptism, it's outward expression of the inward work of Christ. That's what it is. Baptism does not save you, but it is an outward expression of what God has already done inside of you. An outward expression of what God has already done inside of you. It's a public proclamation. You're saying, I got saved. I've been redeemed. I have been cleaned by the blood of Christ. Everything has already been done inside of you, okay? Baptism is an act of obedience, and it's a testimony to all the people that come and witness it. That's what baptism is about. When we do baptisms here, we usually do them at the beach. We've done some at pools, at people's homes and stuff. And we call people. And the people that are getting baptized, they call their family and friends. And usually there's somebody there. We let the church know that we're doing a baptism because we want all the believers to come out and celebrate this person and their public proclamation of their faith, okay? But we also want their friends and family to come out and celebrate this public proclamation that they may know the change in this person is because of Jesus Christ. So baptism is just an outward expression of the inward work of Christ. Let's read this story in Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17. And it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus as a model of what we are supposed to be as believers. He humbles himself and asks John to baptize him. John, Jesus created us. He created everything around us. Imagine being John, knowing this, knowing who Jesus was, and Jesus coming to you saying, hey, uh, can you baptize me? He's like, can you baptize me instead? Right? It's kind of funny because Peter kind of did the same thing with the foot washing. He's like, no, Lord, I'll wash your feet. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I need you to do this for me. 
I need to do this. This is an act of obedience to the Father. This is an example to show all believers that you should be baptized. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to make that public proclamation of baptism, okay? Let's look at what happens here, okay? This is a public proclamation of who Jesus is. We said last week, looking at John 1.1, John 1.14, looking at the book of Matthew and all the things that Matthew says about the deity of Christ. And now we see here, as Jesus is being baptized, remember, it's an outward expression of, of who you are in the inside with the blood of Christ. Well, but because this is God in flesh, this baptism produces a whole different result. The heavens open up, the Spirit descends like a dove on him, and the Father's voice from heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love, in him I am well pleased. A public proclamation that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. We have the fullness of the Trinity. We only get to see this a few times in Scripture. The fullness of the Trinity right here in the baptism of Jesus. We've got Jesus the Son in the flesh, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him, and the Father as a voice from heaven. This is so cool. The baptism of Jesus is such a proclamation of who God is in the fullness of who he is. Not just in the man of Jesus Christ, not just in the Father, not just in the Holy Spirit, but in the fullness of who he is being manifested in his love in flesh here to die for the sins of the world. We get to see that. Just like, would you stop? Sorry, I don't know how to turn that off. Somebody will have to teach me how to use a watch later, okay? Listen, but this is the thing. With Jesus, okay, we get to see that, the fullness of the Godhead, right here in this passage of Scripture. With us, people get to see this symbolic cleansing of being buried with him in baptism. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, you have been buried with him in baptism and you were raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised you from the dead. It's kind of like you were put under the water, your dead self stays, now your live self gets to come up. And that's what you're saying to the world. I was once dead, and now I've been resurrected or born again to new life. And next week's all about being born again. We'll talk about John chapter 3 and being born again, okay? So we're not going to get too far into that right now. But uh, we need to understand that this public proclamation of faith was to show who Jesus was. But here's the reality. This public proclamation of faith that showed who Jesus was in the fullness of his deity here in this moment, okay, that voice from heaven would be duplicated again in the transfiguration where Jesus is actually revealing his glory, okay? So this is a really cool and interesting moment. But immediately what follows this moment is immediately what follows a lot of times when people make that public proclamation of faith. Temptation, temptation. It's almost like you said, hey devil, here I am. I love Jesus, what you gonna do about it? 
It's almost like we're saying that to the devil when we get baptized. I had a student not long ago, and uh, she was so excited. Young girl, got saved in the church, and she was like, oh, Mr. Shelley, I'm getting baptized. I'm getting baptized, and she was so excited, and it just turns out that I was actually teaching here the night that she was getting baptized at her church, so I wasn't able to actually go to her baptism, and I was so bummed because I really wanted to be there for her, but she was so excited. She took video so that she could show me all these amazing things, and uh, it, was, it was incredible. About a month later, I kind of noticed her demeanor changed, the people that she was changing to, choosing to hang out with were also changing. I was like, what's going on here? And as I began to ask questions and as I began to dig a little deeper, I finally got to a little bit of the heart of the issue. This girl was under severe spiritual attack to the point where in the youth of her understanding of who Christ was, she began to say, I don't even know if I really believe this anymore. So her getting baptized brought on a full assault from the enemy. And as believers, as we're leading people to Christ, we need to understand that. We need to prepare people for that, and we need to be there for them as they walk through that, okay? It's vitally important, and I believe that's why Jesus set it up this way in his gospels. I believe he showed us that through this public proclamation, the devil gets angry. I once heard the devil is not as mad about you getting saved as he is about you telling everybody else you got saved. Because as soon as you want to take somebody with you, now he's got a problem. Oh, you want to do your little church thing over there? Yeah, as long as you're just quiet about it and don't tell anyone else about it, fine. Deal with it. It's okay. But as soon as you open your mouth, as soon as you make the public proclamation that Christ is now your Lord, that he is the king of your life, that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you start to tell your family and friends, and you invite them over to baptisms, and the gospel is shared with them, and people are getting saved because of the work that Christ has done in you, all of a sudden, the devil's mad. The devil's mad. And so we see as Jesus makes this public proclamation Instantly, Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast and pray, and the devil shows up. Of course the devil shows up. There's some really amazing stuff here in this passage of Scripture. Let's read in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. Jesus tested in the wilderness. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, This uh, starting uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him and said, it is also written, 
Do not put the Lord your God to, te to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attempted him. Temptations, you can see on the slide, common to all. Power, prestige, and pleasure. Those are some of the most common temptations known to man. Power, prestige, and pleasure. Okay? There you go. I use three Ps. It's a very Baptist thing. There's three points. There's three Ps. Okay? I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to help you guys here, right? I, I'm kidding. Um, Pastor Jonathan and I always um, tease each other about the three-point uh, sermon, and using the same letter to start all your points is a very typical um, type of thing. So we have power, prestige, and pleasure. When we look at the temptations of Jesus, it's important for us to understand that one of the reasons that Jesus walked through this is because of what is said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He did not sin, okay? The temptation of Jesus should remind us of the very first temptation. Have you ever put the two together? The temptation of Jesus, the temptation of Adam and Eve, Quite different circumstances if you really look at it. Uh, a lot of times we talk about Jesus and we're like, well, yeah, Jesus was tempted, but he was perfect, of course, duh. I mean, if I was tempted with those things, I would probably would have been like, yeah, sure, I'll take the power in all this kingdom. But Jesus, he's never going to do that. But the Bible specifically says that he was tempted. It doesn't say that he was offered these things and there were no temptation to him at all. The concept of temptation means that it's enticing to me. The devil's not going to tempt me with something that I'm not interested in. He's going to tempt me with what he knows are my struggles. The things that would easily pull me away, that might entice me into sinning. Okay? Now, we know that Jesus suffered many of these things, okay? That he suffered these temptations, okay? But he never sinned. He never sinned. Were these weaknesses of Jesus? Well, we do know as we begin to break these down that when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray, okay, you see his flesh and spirit struggle. Is that sin? No. The Bible says it's a constant battle between our physical being and our spirit, Reality is in our physical being, people say it all the time. They say, oh, well, I don't mind dying. I'd go on to be with heaven. But to be honest with you, when death arrives, most people are scared. I was going to say scared to death, but it just seemed redundant. It seemed redundant, so I didn't, okay? So it's interesting to, to see here, okay, that when we're talking about Jesus and temptation, okay, we talked about the very first temptation. So Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, and I think that's why it's easy to make this parallel, okay? So let's look at the first Adam. He's also referred to as the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 is where this is. Uh, Adam 
two was perfect. He was perfect. He was created in the image of God. It hadn't been broken yet. There was no sin. He was perfect. He was created to be eternal. Just like Jesus was created perfect because he came from a virgin birth. So there's a lot of similarities. And the Bible says that Jesus is the last Adam, okay? So Adam was tempted, but he gave in to his temptation. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't. And let's look at the conditions. Adam, where was he? He was in a garden. And man, I bet that thing was so beautiful. And he had all of the things he could possibly imagine. And God said, that tree, just that one, just that one, Adam. Don't eat of that one. Oh, you can eat of that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one over there. Oh, that one's real good. It was a mango tree, right? Okay, um, so listen. He had one tree to avoid. It's interesting because the Bible doesn't really tell us with Adam how he arrived at that tree or how Eve or why Eve was standing there. The garden had to be a pretty big place. But for whatever reason, when we're talking about the temptation of Adam and Eve in the beginning, they're standing there staring at the tree. And then it says that the serpent arrived and began to tempt them. So already that thought had been put in their head and was rolling around in their head. I wonder why not that one, right? I wonder why not for them to be standing there staring at that tree, right? You guys know. You know what your weaknesses are. We all know, right? If your weakness is chocolate, chocolate's not a sin, okay, unless it's gluttony, right? I mean, some of you guys, maybe chocolate is a sin because of gluttony. But the reality is, if your weakness is chocolate, you don't go to the grocery store, stock up on a bunch of chocolate, put it in the cabinet and go, Lord, give me the power to resist the temptation. Just like you don't send the alcoholic to the bar to evangelize. Bars are not good places to evangelize most of the time anyway. Okay, that's where I got my shiner. Um, I, was try, I, I was trying. I went in and I told this guy, I said, Jesus Christ loves you and he died for your sins and he stood up and he clocked me. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, it's really an embarrassing story. I got hit by a pickleball. Pickleball. Come on, y'all. This is... Uh, I know, but what I do love about pickleball is it brings people together. Uh, it's one of my favorite things about pickleball. Um, so, but anyway, uh, we know where we need to avoid temptation. But there stood Adam and Eve standing at the tree uh, when Satan tempted them, okay? When Satan tempted them, right? So Adam was living in abundance. He had everything. Where was Jesus? Fasting for 40 days in the middle of the wilderness, Barren desert, nothing around, nothing, rocks. Look what Satan tempts him with. Hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry. Take those mm. rocks. Yep, it's about all that's out here. Rocks and turn them into bread, right? Take those rocks and turn them into bread. He didn't say, hey, see that big mango tree over there? Why don't you get one of those juicy mangoes and why don't you just bite right into it? It's so good. No. He said, take those rocks, 
and turn them into bread. It was a barren condition. And there's probably a lot of parallels that could be made about the current state that sin has brought our world into. Even the state of the world when Jesus was here, the, the destitute nature, the barren, dry land spiritually that the world had become because sin had entered in. Sin had not entered into the garden. It was lush, it was abundant, it was full of life. It had everything that one could imagine in need. Yet the barren desert? So the first Adam was put in a place where it shouldn't have been as tempting. The second Adam was put in a place with fasting, with prayer. Anyone ever fasted for 40 days before? That's rough. I can't, I have not done it. Not 40 days, okay? I may have fasted from social media for, for months. I've fasted from sweets for uh, as many as three to five months at a time. Those types of things, you know, but I've never fasted completely like Jesus fasted here. But they say that your body is weak. Like it's even to the point where it's hard to walk. And it's like your muscles have deteriorated and you're just almost to the point of death. Hey, just turn those rocks into bread. I know you're hungry. I know you're hungry. Let's look at these three things. Hunger. How many of y'all like to eat? I love food. I really do. Fasting's really hard for me because I love food so much. I'm just being honest. I love food. I love food. I know you guys do too because there's more people when we have a potluck than there are when there's a sermon going on, right? You can't, you cannot hide these things from the preacher, okay? Everybody shows up to a potluck, okay? Um, it's okay. We all love food. Jesus is at the potluck just like he's at the sermon, okay? It's okay. Jesus is here every time we come together. So don't feel guilty. Well, feel a little bit guilty. The Bible says you should come and you should congregate together and listen to his word, okay? So hunger. Satan focuses on our physical weaknesses. What are your physical weaknesses? What are the things that are gonna bring you down? Jesus had been fasting. He was weak. He was hungry. And he had the power to do this. And how did Jesus respond? Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. That's how Jesus responded. Man cannot live on bread alone, okay? So Satan was trying to convince Jesus to put his physical needs above his spiritual needs. Jesus was fasting to prepare himself for the ministry that was laid out before him, and Satan said, hey, aren't you hungry? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you hungry? Aren't you hungry? Right? It's kind of like if you're driving in a car and you're driving for a really long time and you've had a couple of cups of coffee and maybe a bottle of water and you have to go to the bathroom and somebody starts making the sounds of like a waterfall or rushing water, you know what I'm talking about? Like when the situation is bad and somebody like starts saying things uh, just to make it worse, okay? Your kids aren't doing that to you guys yet? You guys have really good kids, okay? I don't know, you teach me how that's, I'm kidding. But uh, we used to tease our friends all the time in those type of situations. If you're on a road trip with a bunch of guys or even with, with other people, okay, and, and somebody's gotta go pee really bad, you're like, oh, you gotta go pee? They're like, stop it, stop. What are you talking about? I'm not doing anything. 
right? And all of a sudden, so I'm just trying to see if anybody gets up and goes to the bathroom. Um, no, but listen, whatever it is, okay, it's easy when we're in great physical need to in- abandon everything else we're doing and that becomes our central focus, okay? That's actually one of my biggest struggles with fasting is I have to make sure that food doesn't become the central focus of it when I'm fasting because I love food so much. I have to make sure that it's not about, okay, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat. Well, why are you not eating? So I can pray, but I don't have time to pray because I gotta keep convincing myself I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat, I'm not gonna eat. No, the purpose here is spiritual and the enemy wants to entice you into the physical because he wants you to satisfy the flesh and abandon the spiritual. He wants to get you diverted onto something else. Maybe it's not food, maybe it's other things. And you think to yourself, well, what difference does a little bit make? What difference? I mean, God is gracious and loving and kind anyway, right? And isn't it easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? Say, if you're a child in the room, you didn't hear that, okay? I'm sorry, Sadie. That's, I, it's, I'm sorry, Amy, I should say. Amy, I'm sorry that she heard that, okay? It's not, right, it's not easier to ask, yes it is. But anyway, you think it is, but the reality is damage is being done, okay? And that's really important. So we need to make sure to focus on what God has called us to. And this was a fasting, he was preparing himself physically, I mean spiritually, and the devil was trying to tempt him into a physical need over his spiritual needs. So number two, using power over death. The devil said, hey, Jesus, come up here, top of the temple, right here, okay? Now jump. This is going to be awesome. Now look what the devil does. Jesus uses scripture, and the devil says, oh, I know that stuff too. I can use some scripture. So it says right there in Psalm 91, 11 through 12, it says, and God We'll send his angels, okay, and they're going to catch you, Jesus. It says in the Psalms right there. Just do it. It's not that big a deal. Come on. Use your power over death. Use your power over death right now. It's going to be awesome. You can jump, and you can call the angels midair, and they'll catch you. The Scripture says, now, The crazy thing about Satan, and he does this all the time, he leaves parts out. If you go back to Psalm 91 and you compare it to what's being said there, there's a passage in that that in all his ways, the devil left out when the devil was quoting it. He was misquoting scripture. He was using it out of context to entice Jesus to sin in all his ways. What does it mean? It means when it aligns with the will of God. When it aligns with the will of God, then these things will happen. But it wasn't the will of God to use Jesus' power to keep him from dying. It was like, Satan was like, hey, you've got the power to be a superhero, demonstrate it for me. It'll be awesome. We love superhero movies, right? Just jump from up there, call the angels, and all of a sudden there'll be a bunch of angels on the ground going, we got you, Jesus. 
And Satan will go, what a great show that was. What was Jesus' purpose in the power over death? Raising Lazarus from the dead as an example? Raising himself from the dead, the Bible says? The Bible says Jesus raised himself from the dead. That's wild. He was dead. He raised himself from the dead, okay? The Bible says he raised himself from the dead. His power over death was for those moments of glory. It was to bring glory and honor back to God, not to demonstrate some type of superhero power that the devil was wanting him to. This was about ego. This was about, but look, Jesus, look how great this would be, okay? Jesus uh, responds with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 16. Uh, what I see when I read this, because you see Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 8, 3. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, 16. And then the last one, Jesus is gonna respond with Deuteronomy 6, 13. Pretty sure that Jesus in his morning devotions was reading Deuteronomy. That's how that works with you guys, right? Whatever I'm studying in my morning devotions usually ends up being used sometime throughout that day or throughout the following week or something like that. So I'm pretty sure Jesus had been reading the scrolls of Deuteronomy. Maybe he just knew it all, I'm guessing here. But here's the reality. Jesus uses the book of Deuteronomy, and most of you guys are scared to death of the book of Deuteronomy when you're doing your reading plans. You're like, oh, Deuteronomy, I can't even say the name Deuteronomy. I could not say it in Spanish, just to let you know. It is so difficult in Spanish. They pronounce every single letter of that word, and it is wild. They always, 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 I'm like, no, can't do it, can't do it, okay? But here's the reality. Jesus uses Scripture in context to put Satan in his place. This tells us we need Scripture. We need this. We need to be in this. I'm not saying you gotta have it memorized. Some people have the capacity for that, and yay for them. I know people that can memorize scripture, they can quote scripture, but they're not very nice people. Isn't that terrible? You ever met somebody like that? They got scripture, they can tell you all kinds of things, they can do all, and all this type of stuff, and you're like, you know, maybe you should spend more time working on the love of Christ in your heart instead of just memorizing all the scripture. I've met people like that, you guys. I mean, when we were traveling, when we were in Israel, I met a monk, and you know those guys know the scripture. They meditated on nastiest, nastiest, hateful, hateful person. Yelled at all the boys for wearing shorts. You remember that? Filthy, get out of here. Like, we were like, what? You should be ashamed of yourself. Walking around, letting your legs show. I'm like, here I have a group of 40 young men and women, and this is the example of Christ, a man who dedicated himself to Christ and the scriptures. This is the example that they get. And they're thinking to themselves, I wanna grow up and be that. No, okay? Listen, we need to be in this. We need to know this. Doesn't mean you have to have it all memorized. 
But you should have a pretty good idea where to find some of these things. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit actually dwelling in you will give you the power to be able to remember the things that you need to know in the moments that God needs you to know them. God gives us that power. So maybe you're not great at memorization. It's still important that you try, okay? There's some verses that I absolutely believe without a shadow of a doubt, you should definitely have these things memorized. The Romans road to salvation, great passages of scripture to have memorized to be able to lead someone to the Lord, okay? And if y'all don't know John 3.16 by now, you should probably just learn it. You should probably just learn it. You thought I was gonna say hang up your hats, didn't you? And just go home. I didn't because never, never, just because you don't know a verse of scripture or a story out of the Bible, don't be ashamed. I remember so many times in conversations, somebody would say, oh, you remember that story of that one king and he did this thing and he did that thing and he did that? And I'm like, yeah. I had no idea. And what a fool was I for saying I knew something I didn't know. And that's what's wrong a lot of times. A lot of us pretend like we know things that we don't know. There's no shame. If you don't know something, say, I don't remember that one. No, that's the one of the king, and he did that, and he did that thing, and he did that, and it's in, you know, it's over there in Chronicles. And you're like, oh, that's why. I don't think I've ever read Chronicles. Maybe I should read Chronicles. Those are moments where God inspires you to read books of the Bible, learn new things. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed if you don't know a story, if you don't know something that somebody's talking about or some word. I remember the first time somebody told me expiation. I was like, the what? The what? Yeah, I know exactly what that means. I lied. I repent right now. I pretended like I knew. You know you've all done it. You know every single one of you has done it. You're all guilty of it. I know you are. Pretending like you know something about the Bible that you didn't actually know because you didn't want somebody to think you were dumb. Okay, I think all of you guys are guilty. I can see it in your faces. All right, number three. Number three, a shortcut to the kingdom. A shortcut to the kingdom. He took him on the top of the mountain and he said, look, I'll give you all of this, all of it. Just bow down and worship me. Listen, this had to be a tough one for Jesus. It had to be a tough one for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knew what he had to walk through to actually get the promised kingdom that he was going to receive. He knew what he had to walk through. He knew that the lashes were coming. He knew that the cross was coming, but so much greater than lashes and cross, he knew that the wrath of God was gonna be poured out upon him on that cross as he took the penalty and punishment for every single one of our sins. He knew it. So the devil offering him all of this without having to do all of that but church, listen, the kingdom that the devil wants to offer you today is dead. It's vile. It's filthy. The kingdom that was waiting and the kingdom that's waiting for us is beautiful. It's holy and it's pure. And just like Jesus, there's some suffering that's gonna come along the way. The Bible doesn't say if you suffer. It says when you suffer. When 
you suffer. I'm really sorry if somebody gave you a gospel that said everything's gonna be roses from here on out because it was a false gospel because that's not how it works. Just like we started tonight, we'll finish. Making that public proclamation to say Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and I have been redeemed by his blood. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. To say those things, the enemy is not happy and he's not going to leave you alone. This is called the temptation of Jesus. Well, the rest of the gospels are also the temptation of Jesus. Jesus gets hit from, it's kind of like, well, uh, take this uppercut over here and uh, this one right there and yeah, and a jab to the gut right here and you know, but this is the reality. Some of our lives actually end up like that, like a boxing match with the devil. He's constantly, but here's the reality. Jesus said, I got you. I'm your defense. James chapter four says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The last thing that happened in this passage of scripture after Jesus quoted this third scripture to the devil and resisted this last temptation is the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. If you've ever walked through temptation, if you've ever been beat up by the enemy, you know that no matter what storm's going on in your life, if you keep your eyes focused on the Lord, that in the end, he will minister to your spirit. He will refresh you, he will renew you, he will redeem you again and again and again. And when we fail, because we do, when we fail and we give in to that temptation, know that there's probably gonna be consequences to those things. But also know that God is so gracious and so loving and so kind, just like we learned last week, whether it was the prostitute, whether it was the enemy of God, whether whatever it was, even Tamar, who should have grown up knowing better in Judah and that filthiness that we talked about, Whatever it was, God's redemptive plan was always there with his arms open to receive them in as they repented and recognized him. And he's there for us. So maybe you've been tempted. Maybe you've fallen. Maybe you've been tempted. Maybe you're being tempted now. And you're fighting. You're in a battle. Lean into Jesus. Lean in hard. The battle belongs to to him, but this is the beautiful thing that most soldiers going into battle don't know before they go in. The war has been won. We may lose little battles along the way, but victory has already been declared. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray. Uh, let's uh, prepare our hearts with the song of worship, and I just pray, if you're having a rough time tonight, just surrender it to the Lord. Whatever that temptation is, whatever that battle is, just give it over to the Lord in this time of communion. Then let's celebrate uh, together during this song. If you just get up and get your elements as you feel led, we'll celebrate together and then we'll sing one final song and ce of celebration before we go out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord. Lord, we know that 
you went through so many things while you were here, Lord. We know that you experienced the temptations and trials that we have, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you're compassionate and understanding to our trials, our temptations, and our struggles, Lord. So, Lord, we just lay them at your feet, Lord. We surrender ourselves wholly to you, Lord, and ask you to minister to our lives today. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.